Thank you for taking the time to view this message online. You can connect with us more through our comment section of this video, through our Facebook page, or through our website, nhgj.org. In this series of messages, I've been making an all-out push to back the campaign of the one who is most capable of leading us, both in 2020 and forever. I am promoting, I am proclaiming Jesus Christ as King and that he is bringing the kingdom of God everywhere that his church goes to. It's a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's also a big part of reality. We look in this season in American politics and we tend to get polarized one side or the other, red or blue, Democrat, Republican, independent, libertarian, and any other group that you might want to put in there. But in the midst of all of this, Jesus is within his church is to be elevated. And we're supposed to see him as a king who has brought his kingdom and allow these other kingdoms and these other parties to begin to dissipate in terms of their importance and in terms of what we believe they'll actually accomplish. This idea that Jesus wants to be king, not just of a religious kingdom, churches and buildings and prayer times and worship services, but Jesus truly wants to be king of every person, of every life, in every facet of their life. This is an important thing for us to understand because otherwise we relegate Jesus to just religious activities when really he wants to be a very present king in every part of our lives. We're exploring this idea of what it means when he is king and when the kingdom comes. And so far we've explored these points that first of all, Jesus is a real king and he has a real kingdom. And Christians who identify with Christ or those who identify with Christ and are Christians, that his kingdom comes first and foremost and every other kingdom kind of fades to the side. Secondly, that Jesus has a platform. He has a way of dealing with issues that happen in day-to-day -day life. He has a way of administering power, Holy Spirit power to his people. And it changes people from the inside out that he's not looking to overtake platforms and powers of this world so that he can affect change, but he has power and he has uh, real change that comes as he brings heaven and brings it to earth. And then thirdly, that our work is to join him in this kingdom. That our work is to help to shape out of chaos and rebellion and darkness, that we bring this form of godliness, that we bring the image of Christ, that we bear the image of Christ in our lives, and that we have dominion over this earth, but we also have responsibility that comes with it. That we're called not just to be consumers, but we're called to be shapers who are life givers to the places that we go. And we help others to be image bearers uh, as they see the image of God in one another. So in this message, we're going to be looking at biblical mandates versus our civic responsibilities. We only have a short time before uh, the election takes place uh, in terms of when this uh, message is being recorded. Uh, we're just about a week and uh, a little over a week away. People are often surprised when reading the Bible of how often God's people faced persecution and hardship. Not only persecution and hardship, but also death. They're surprised how many times that they see that the world around the people of God 
did not welcome them, but instead rejected them and oppressed them. Even when things begin well, like when Joseph invites his family to Egypt, we then see that it doesn't end well, that over many years, as we get to the 400-year mark, that they became enslaved and they were being killed. And they experienced extreme hardship and even infanticide during that time before God finally saves them and sets them free. In the New Testament, John the Baptist, after preaching and baptizing and preparing the way for Jesus to come, he finds himself imprisoned for speaking out against King Herod, and eventually John the Baptist is beheaded. Jesus himself, he's coming with a kingdom, not with violence and with threats, but instead he's bringing the kingdom with power and love. But he is flogged, he is mocked, and he is crucified. In the early church, Stephen is placed in front of men, and we see the Apostle Paul, who at that time was Saul, uh, who was very fervent for eradicating the, the Christians, the early church. He was passionate about that until his conversion. But Stephen is placed in front of these men who pick up stones and they throw them at him repeatedly until he dies from the blows. In fact, all of the first followers of Jesus experienced beatings and death at the hands of worldly authorities. Peter and Paul were both martyred in Rome around 66 AD uh, under the persecution of Emperor Nero. Paul was beheaded. Peter, at his request, was not crucified upright but upside down because he did not feel he was worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. Andrew, another one of the disciples, went to what is now considered to be uh, Russia, and Christians there claim him to be the first to bring the gospel to their land. He also preached in Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey, and in Greece, where he is said to have been crucified. And then Thomas was probably the most active in the area east of Syria, where they claim that he died when he was pierced through uh, with, uh, with spears from soldiers. So all of these and many more have experienced persecution, hardship, and even death at the hands of authorities within this world. Over and over, stories like these are told of those who have gone on before us and they have proclaimed the faith in Jesus Christ and have faced difficulty. Time after time, the response to their message is that they were confronted by the principalities and powers of this world and persecuted. Now, this is an important idea for us to grasp as we think about bringing the kingdom of God and proclaiming Jesus as king. It's important because while Jesus brought peace and he was nonviolent in his approach, that he didn't receive the same response from the world around him. And when Peter is writing to the church in the New Testament, he, he tells them, listen, don't be surprised if you experience the same types of things that Jesus experienced. Because those who follow after him, his students, should expect to experience the same response as their master. They should experience the same hardship. It's an ongoing conflict, and Christians need to understand how we can prioritize our kingdom mandates, that which we're compelled to do, which we're directed to do out of Scripture, and our civic responsibilities. How do we keep these in balance? Because it can be easy to become violent or aggressive to the culture when it doesn't embrace you, or it can be easy to be uh, the tendency can be to be more passive about the kingdom of God and embrace the culture because of the difficulties that we might face. 
Well, let's, take, let's pray and we'll take time to look at uh, how we find this in Timothy and then also in Peter's writing of what our role is in the culture around us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power and its authority in our life, that it changes us from the inside out. And we thank you that it is timeless, that we don't just look back and have to try to guess at how to apply it to our lives, but you make it very clear for us. Uh, you make it very apparent, and then you empower us to live it out. And so we thank you for your word. We bless it to our hearing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus comes from heaven and he comes to earth and he brings to earth what's happening in heaven, something new. He brings something that people had never experienced before. But he says, listen, you're not going to get this naturally here on earth. You have to be born again, reborn into the kingdom of God. He goes about healing, delivering, uh, setting people free and proclaiming that true freedom comes from those who for those who embrace him as king and welcome the kingdom into their life. And every community that Jesus goes into, there's upheaval. There's upheaval among the religious leaders. There's upheaval in the governmental leaders who wonder, what is this person's objective? What is it that Jesus is trying to do with a suspicious eye because they're afraid that he's trying to win over the people and turn them against them and take them uh, for his own purposes. Jesus is crucified and resurrected and then gives this instruction to those who are following him. Wait, he says. He's resurrected and he tells the disciples, wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit who's going to come upon you. He's going to descend upon you in power and then I want you to do the same things I did, Jesus tells his disciples. Heal the sick, set people free, and proclaim the kingdom has come. And guess what? That's exactly what they did. They got this one right. They waited, they waited, and the Holy Spirit descended upon them in power. They began to speak in other tongues. They began to go throughout Jerusalem and the immediate area, healing the sick, seeing people set free uh, by the power of God. And message, a message is presented by Peter and thousands come to faith. And as they continue to minister in that area, more thousands come to faith in Jesus. Suddenly persecution comes upon Jerusalem and they all take off just to save their lives. There's a remnant who's left there in Jerusalem, but so many of them are dispersed out of Jerusalem. And they go, but they don't leave the message in Jerusalem. They go into the neighboring community, communities, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Everywhere they go, they bring this message. Jesus is king. The kingdom has come. Setting people free. Bringing deliverance. Healing the sick. Now, wherever they go, they're also still finding persecution. Rome is relentless, hunting down Christians. The Jews in each community take offense that this uprising, this Christian cult, as they would say, has come into their community. And so they're getting crushed under all of this persecution as they go from town to town and as they settle into a community, they just feel crushed under the weight of this persecution and hardship. So what do you do? What would you or I do in a situation where we go into a community and 
were delivering this gospel message of peace and love and hope and redemption, setting people free, seeing healing come. But at the same time, the other thing that's happening is that the government and other religious leaders in the area are putting pressure on you and physically abusing people and even death. People are being killed. Followers of Jesus are being killed as they bring the good news to these communities. You're being singled out, verbally maligned, marginalized, losing jobs, losing work opportunities, being beaten and murdered. It's in this setting that Paul writes to Timothy and he gives Timothy instructions as to how to address this issue within the church in Ephesus. How do we deal and engage with the community in the midst of this type of tension, both delivering the gospel, but also facing hardship from the government around them? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may live, uh, lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Here's Paul's instructions that he gives to Timothy and consequently to us as well. Here's how we should address when we're facing persecution from government and from forces outside of us. Here's our responsibility. First of all, he says, listen, you should make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings are to be made for all people. And in the midst of that, he specifically includes kings and all who are in high positions. We're supposed to pray. We're supposed to pray for these leaders, these authorities. In the midst of facing difficulties, in the midst of being persecuted, we're supposed to pray for them. But what are we supposed to pray for? And why are we supposed to pray? First of all, it says that we're supposed to pray that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You mean, we're not supposed to pray that they remain king or emperor or president? That's not the goal in our prayers? Or maybe we should be praying about the issues that affect us. Is that what Paul directs us to? Are we praying so that we can have the ear of the king or the emperor or the president? Why, Paul? What, what are we praying for? Again, he says, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Listen, our goal, the directive that we have is to pray for authorities to come to salvation because God loves them. And so that we can lead quiet and peaceful lives and point others to Jesus Christ. In other words, pray that these authorities Pray that these people who can affect your lives in dramatic way, don't pray about their policies. Don't pray about their election, their demise, or their success. 
Pray that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Pray that they would have a come to Jesus moment so that they will let you live in peace so you can continue to bring the gospel to your community. That's what Paul says to pray about. That's what he directs the church to pray about in relationship to authorities. Listen, he says, we want to see people set free. And that includes those who are in authority, those who are in high positions. Don't pray specifically for policies. Don't, don't get encumbered in the issues as much as you are praying that they would have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The most needed and most effective prayers the church can offer government authorities is not about bending their politics, but about bending their knee before the throne of Jesus Christ. Listen, church, we can't be more spiritually invested in Donald Trump's politics than we are in his position before Jesus. You want to know a good, godly prayer for Donald Trump? Pray that Jesus gets every part of his life and he is humbled so deeply that you see him face down before the throne of Jesus saying, my King and my Lord. You want to know a prayer for Joe Biden? It's not for his success or his failure. Offering that prayer is more like a clanging gong before the throne. But if you really want to get God's attention, intercede for Joe Biden, praying that he will embrace the way of Jesus so completely that he will spend every day for the rest of his life waiting before the Lord, asking how he can please Jesus, his king. This scripture tells us, Paul, in giving Timothy instruction, it tells us that we have a biblical directive to pray for whoever is in authority, regardless of their political party affiliation. Now, I know back then they didn't have party affiliation, but it, it, it didn't allow them. Paul wasn't giving them opportunity to choose sides. These were brutal dictators, emperors who did not do nice things to Christians. One of the most brutal time in Christian history. And Paul doesn't allow them to be partial, nor does he give us that freedom. We should be praying with the same vigor and passion for Bill Clinton, George Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and whoever else would step into the role of president or other roles of authority. The same passion, because God can, God has, and God will use any man or woman in authority to fulfill his purposes. So we should not be fearful. We should not be anxious. We should not be perplexed in God's part in all of this. There's no cause to be uptight about what's happening. God elevates one, humbles another. Instead, we should be sober about our part in this. Pray. God will handle his part, but the question is, will you and I handle our part? Will we pray? Can you pray for policies? Can you pray for agendas? Sure, it's not that you can't pray, but listen, please don't get it twisted. There are men and women who, apart from Christ, are broken, lonely, insecure, hurting, addicted, etc., etc. These are leaders whose lives are very frail and are subject to death and eternal death apart from God. And so we're directed, we have a biblical mandate to pray for these people that they would have a experience with Jesus Christ, a, a salvation experience that would so fill their life that he would have every part of their being. Again, why? 
Why does Paul say we, we want them to be saved? Well, for one, God loves them. God so loved the world that he would desire that none would perish. God loves them and he wants all to come to salvation and truth, it says. Secondly, he says, pray so that you and I, if you're a follower of Christ, you can continue to do what God has commanded and directed you to do, is to live a quiet, godly life that is an example for all who would be watching you. And you can continue to carry on the ministry, the work of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the kingdom, healing the sick, setting the captives free. Instead of setting people free in politics, we're setting people free in Jesus. And so this is why Paul says to pray. Pray that they might allow you to just to continue the mission that he has for you. Finally, this is not just Paul pointing to one instance and instructing Timothy regarding the church in Ephesus. We read similar instructions from Peter. Yes, Peter. You know, the impulsive one who, when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter who grabbed a sword and cut off the ear of the, the servant of the high priest, who was going to defend Jesus and the kingdom by force. Yes, that same Peter, he's the one who has these instructions to give. The same one who was impulsive and forceful in his personality. As he matured in Christ, these are the instructions that he gave to the church. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You know, it's as, it's as though Peter and the Apostle Paul, they're listening to the same person. And they are, the Holy Spirit. As they write these things under the leading of the Holy Spirit, this is a consistent idea and it fits in any context. The reason and the principles are the same across all ages, generations, all cultures. We show respect and follow laws because we're trying to live quiet lives that allow us to be bold for the gospel and literally turn the world upside down for Jesus and not fight battles over civics. So is it okay to disobey human authorities, maybe is a question that comes up. And if so, when? The biblical response to that is yes. There are situations we are, where we are to disobey government authorities. And the examples are when we're told to do something that compels us or directs us to sin against God. For example, if they tell you that you must stop telling others that Jesus is Lord, that's a directive that you and I would be forced to disobey because we must, we're commanded to proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If they tell you that someone else other than Jesus is Lord and you must bow your knee, you must worship somebody other or something other than Jesus Christ, that's a directive you need to disobey. You need to follow the scripture. You need to follow Jesus instead of obeying that mandate. Generally, anytime you're told to disobey God so you can obey a human authority, authority instead, this is when you would disobey the human authority. But then when does our personal or civic rights distract from biblical mandates? 
Well, typically it's when we make more noise over our civic rights than we do about Jesus himself. And let me give you a good example, one that most everybody in the United States is really tired of, but it has to do with these facial coverings, a mask. (laughs) Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Should masks be mandated? Should they not be? Listen, where we live, in the county in which we live, and the state in which we live, there are directives that are both state and county directives. And they ask that when we come into a worship space that we have these on and that we follow those guidelines. Now, as a pastor and as an American who has uh, certain liberties provided through the Constitution, I could make a lot of noise. I could say, no masks. We're not going to obey that mandate because we have freedom. We, uh, you know, we have liberties that are provided for us in the Constitution. I could call the radio station. I could call the TV station. I could tell them we're standing up for our rights and we're not going to obey anything that the county tells us or the state tells us. We have religious liberties provided for us. And I could do all of those things and make it very clear uh, that we're not going to obey these civil rules, these, these mandates that have come out by the county or by the state. And in doing so, let me pose the question to you. What would our community know about us? What would be the message most prominent to our community when we make these declarations about our personal rights? Well, I can tell you because it's being played out in newspapers and airwaves all over the United States. What they would know is that the church is not going to follow mandates because the church believes itself to have a different directive. But they would know very little about our gospel. They would know very little about Jesus. But they would know a lot about how we view our civic rights and what privileges and things are afforded to us in the Constitution. What do they know about Jesus? Nothing more. Only about our civic rights. So in our church, we post the county requirements related to wearing a mask. And as a pastor, I uh, abide by these as best of my ability. We don't compel, meaning force people to do it. Uh, We don't push people out the doors because we believe that we also have a mandate that is biblical to proclaim the gospel. And the reality is, is that we want to make much of Jesus and not a whole lot of noise about masks. And I want to suggest that that's a directive that each of us should think about before we disobey civil guidelines. Are we making noise about our civil rights or are we making noise about Jesus? Because you can't do both. The world around you hears one or the other. They're not going to catch both. The truth is the early church demonstrated this for us, that you can't make much of your rights and also make much of Jesus. They will see one or the other. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to be served as king, but I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Listen, church in America today, we can't make much of ourselves and all of our civil rights and at the same time make much of Jesus. You're going to have to choose. So you're either going to have to make the voice of Christ and the word of God much stronger and your voice about your civil liberties 
less because people need to hear a message of hope. And is the message that you're providing the one in the Constitution or is it the message you're providing in the gospel? Is there a place for civil interaction? Absolutely. But please hear me in this. Your noise for Jesus, your making much of Jesus has to be so much louder that otherwise all that people get from us is that we're the same as the culture around us. And our message sounds very much like others within the culture around us. And it's this group versus that group. And in the midst of it, Jesus wants to bring the kingdom of God. And he wants us to make much of him. And he wants us to say, whatever rights I might forfeit, as the Apostle Paul said, whatever claims I might have, I gladly release them so that I can make much of the gospel. To the Jew, I become a Jew, a Gentile, Gentile. <laughs> to one who is in changed, chains, I become enslaved myself so that I might proclaim Christ, him crucified, resurrected, and sitting at the right hand of the Father. That is our call. We have absolutely civic rights, but we also have biblical mandates. And the challenge for us, the invitation for us, is to make sure that we always lift up our biblical mandates far above our civic rights so that people, the world around us, can see us living godly lives, quiet godly lives, pointing them to Christ, bringing the freedom that comes through Jesus to the world around us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message of hope that you've given us. It is good news, and we pray that we would preserve it. We would preserve it as such that it is good news to the listeners around us, that it would be a, a peculiar noise amidst the clamoring in the world, that it would sound unique, that it would sound freeing to those who hear it, that, Lord, it wouldn't just be us standing up for ourselves, but, Lord, it would be us standing up for the marginalized, those who are afflicted, those who are facing difficult times, Lord, that we would partner with them, that we would stand with them, bringing the hope that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we follow the instruction of praying for those in authority, that they might be saved, that they might have a resurrected life in you and be completely transformed and thereby enabling us to live quiet lives in the communities in which we abide in and that we be able to continue the mission that you called us to. We thank you for it. We thank you for your word, and may it grow a harvest out of us, and may your church prosper in this season as we point to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. You can find more resources for this service at nhgj.org. Email us your prayer requests to prayer at nh4gj.org. If you are a new follower of Jesus, we have a free resource for you called Following Jesus. To receive a copy, send a request to info at nh4gj.org. If you would like to partner with our ministry through giving, you can do that online at nhgj.org giving or by mail to 641 Horizon Drive, Grand Junction, Colorado, 81506. Thank you for being with us and may the Lord bless you.